Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Kawaii Douglas. Oh, yeah? That's your, your new nickname. No. I just wanted to try it out. Yeah? yeah. Kawaii. 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 Yeah, I don't know. I don't think that people usually call me cute, though, which is what kawaii essentially means in Japanese. Hmm. Yeah, what is it? What is cute? What does it mean to be cute as a person, as a thing? Like, what does that label mean within our culture? Well, I think in the United States, it's more of an outward appearance, whereas in Japanese culture, it is sort of this whole industrial complex of absolute cuteness. Yes, yes, definitely. In Japan, kawaii is big business and has been for for decades now. Um, but certainly cute holds a lot of power here in the States as well, mm-hmm. uh, throughout most of the rest of the world. I mean, even just looking around in this room, we can see some little bits of cute peeking their way. And there's a, there's a wooden monkey over there on Noel's desk. There's a... Pablo Picasso in well, his underwear picture well, of I, Pablo Picasso in his underwear. Yes, I don't know how cute that is. But but the, the monkey's cute. To a limited extent, the dinosaur is cute. And if you go around our desk, like any workplace, you're going to find various totems of cute, uh, various little uh, little icons of cuteness that, uh, to some degree, empower the individual who has it. That's right. So we are going to explore this concept of kawaii, and we're going to do it through a couple of different vectors here, one of which is, of course, uh, one of the, the big exports of the Internet. I'm not talking about porn, but the other thing... Cats. Cats, yes. Yeah, so it should come as no surprise to anyone that, of course, the Internet is full of cat videos, cat photos, cat memes, images, gifts, you name it. I mean, in any given day, you're probably bombarded with at least two or three of these things, right? And then if you're act- actively seeking them out, if you're actively consuming them, then there is no end in sight. You could get on a kick one day and just keep going till you starve to death. You could. You would just fall down that cat wormhole. Mm-hmm. And, and you, right, you, you can fill your head with, with all these sorts of images. And actually, there is an artificial neural network that Google's X Laboratory and Stanford University have been working on. And again, this is a large scale neural network. It's distributed across 16,000 processor cores and researchers trained models with more than 1 billion connections. And they found that this network, when it sort of ran off on its own, it learned how to identify a cat after a week of watching YouTube videos. That is how prevalent this subject is on the internet. Yeah, they, they fed it random thumbnails of images, uh, each one extracted from 10 million YouTube videos. And it, ends up having to basically invent the concept of the cat in processing all of this data, figuring out, all right, what's at the heart of this? What is this about? What is what, what, what is all this data telling me? It is telling me this is a cat. This is the form of the cat. And, uh, and, and, then, and then everything else stems from that. And so you have someone like philosopher Dan Dennett who who's talking about these sort of super normal stimuli. And he's talking about super, super normal stimuli like chocolate cake. He's saying that um, there are certain things in our environment that we see that really get us ramped up and that cats, babies, these all may be the sort of super stim- stimuli that works um, on this sort of evolution and instinctual preference. So if you look at a, a chocolate cake, for instance, um, that is a high energy food, right? Yes. You like 
the the chocolate cake, not because it's chocolate cake, but because you know that it's going to be a huge shot of glucose and that, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, that would be helpful for us to have stores of that, right? Yes, because in the ancient past, of course, a, a big chocolate cake was hard to come by. Or certainly that much sugar, that much energy in one place was hard to come by. You had to jump on it. And, and uh, it, the chocolate cake example is great, too, because if anyone remembers back to our episodes on decision fatigue mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and, and neural load and how that uh, how we carry that through the day, the experiments that studied it, uh, most of the time they seem to incorporate chocolate cake in, in one form or another, using that as the temptation as, uh, yeah. to, your, uh, to your willpower, to your, uh, your problem-solving ability. Let's see what happens when we throw a chocolate cake in your direction, not literally, uh, though that would be awesome as well. But, uh, but we'll put it in your vicinity and see how it affects your brain power. And lo and behold, it just really tinkered with people's yeah. ability to think rationally. Yeah, because suddenly I have to at least resist it. In, in a way, it's like I have to fight that chocolate cake. It's like it's like you're going through a dungeon and you're trying to get to the, the treasure and then you have to fight a troll along the way. It's the same thing, except uh, the, the battle's taking place inside your mind as you try to resist the irresistible glucose temptation of the cake. So Dennett would say that a super normal stimuli for cuteness, of course, would be babies. He says it's important that we love babies, that we not be put off by saying messy diapers. He says, so babies have to attract our affection and our nurturing, and they do. And so that's when you begin to really look at not just babies, but cats and puppies and really anything that embodies this idea of innocence and vulnerability and, and this sort of parental... Uh, instinct that we'll talk a little bit more about. But this is this idea that cats perhaps have arrested our attention because of this instinct. Because they look like babies, essentially. And then play it up, too, as we've discussed before, crying in a way that mimics the cries of a baby, etc. Yes. Now, I wanted to, to mention this because we are going to go dive into this kawaii. We're going to uh, dive more into cats and the culture of cats on the Internet. But there's something called cute aggression. And I, think, I don't know. Part of me is sort of, you know, one eyebrow raised about this study. Yeah, it just sounds like a Tumblr page. It's actually a, a study, actually a theory. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So Rebecca Dyer, she's a grad student in psychology at Yale University, took 109 people. And she had them look at pictures of animals. The categories were cute, funny, and neutral photos, uh, actually specifically of puppies. And then the participants rated how they felt about the pictures, agreeing or disagreeing with statements like, I just can't handle it, meaning the cuteness, <laughs> um, or whether or not it made them want to squeeze something or if they were seized with the impulse to vocalize after seeing one of these pictures, like, so cute. So researchers found that the cuter the animal, the more aggressive the response. Okay. Okay. So now they follow up with a nonverbal study. And participants participants are given bubble wrap, and they're told to just go to town with it. Okay. And they watch a slideshow of cute and then funny and then neutral pictures of animals. And then, lo and behold, what you find is that more bubbles were popped during the cute slideshows as opposed to the funny pictures of animals or the neutral pictures of animals. Now, the data is not that crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking about 120 pops for the cuteness, um, 80 pops for the funny, and only 100, or excuse me, 100 for the neutral. So, you know, the data here is not like putting this this strong information out there to say, like, people are just... Bursting with cute aggression and, you know, but they are saying, Rebecca Dyer at least is saying, it could be 
this sort of pent-up frustration at not being able to reach through those photos and cuddle that baby or that puppy. Yeah, because you just want to touch it. You want to bite it. Well, and that's what we've talked about that mm-hmm. before, how, how sometimes there are these there are people who will say, that baby's so cute, I just want to eat it. Yeah, and, and on some level, you you actually do. On some level, you're being fooled into into equating the baby's cuteness and the face of the baby, the shape of the baby, the babiness of the creature, equating it with something you would actually gorge on if found in the forest. Which is kind of awful. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, on that note, maybe we should take a uh, break here, and when we get back, we'll get more into this idea of Kauai. All right, we're back. You know, another thing about that study, I uh, had never heard uh, of a study using the bubble wrap uh, method before. I really hope that becomes standardized to the point where we see movies about serial killers, where like a, a potential serial killer is being forced to look at you know accident photos to mm-hmm. see if he gets a rise out of him. <laughs> and so it's like you know an Anthony Hopkins Hannibal-like character sitting there with a grim face watching grim footage and then popping bubble wrap. And it just becomes really so much a part of how we determine unconscious thoughts that even the CIA begins to use it, right? Yeah, just just orders with like vast reams of the stuff, yeah. And then people are probably more willing participants because who doesn't love to pop bubble wrap? Everyone, everyone loves it. Even dogs love it. Sure. Yeah. It's satisfying. All right, kawaii. Um, we, we touched on it at the beginning of the episode, but I kind of see it. This is very reductionist because it really, we could do an entire podcast on Japanese culture and kawaii. But um, it's sort of this Hello Kittyization. Hello Kitty is certainly the, the easiest example and certainly the, the, the most widespread example of, uh, of Japanese culture, kawaii, uh, cute culture. Uh, because it's it's everywhere now, and it's 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 the big eyes, it's the cute creature, and it uh, and it also has that sort of uh, Japanese schoolgirl quality to it. Like, mm-hmm. And then that's according to to some cultural uh, historians, that's kind of the the origin of the the kawaii movement in, in Japan. Anyway, that it uh, you go back to the 1970s, you mm-hmm. find this kitten writing, this cute handwriting they call it among Which the school banned girls. in schools, right? Yeah, because initially. it wasn't really all that readable. I mean, it, it got you know to the point where it's just big round characters and faces and stars, and uh, and the, and the, the teachers were saying, no, this is not actual writing. But then it blows up. It starts showing up in comic. I mean, not in comic books, but in magazines. But then mm-hmm. ultimately in mag, mag, magna and, and other. Forms and eventually becomes this huge industry with stuff like Hello Kitty, which is just all over the world and, and, and attached to so many different products. Yeah, and if you look really deeply into Kauai, you will begin to see that it's not just the products, the clothing, um, even food items, or even some of the logos that are on airplanes in some um, government entities, mm-hmm. but it's also behavior and mannerism. Among both genders, mm-hmm. and it really is this preoccupation with um, not just cuteness but youth and innocence. So it's this uh, it's sort of an arrested development. I look at it that way, not yeah. the TV show, but in terms of you know trying to stave off aging and all of the sort of responsibility and perhaps the less fun aspects of life as you get older. Yeah, and then probably in, in, encapsulates a lot of nostalgia as well. As you, you, you grow older, you end up still catching, attaching these cute icons and this kawaiification of just about every aspect of life, and therefore you keep it kind of tethered to youth and tethered to youth culture. 
You know, what's interesting about that, too, is that if you seize on to this idea of kawaii and you seize on to this idea of embodying these aspects of cuteness and big-eyedness and innocence, then perhaps in a way you're thinking to yourself, on a subconscious level at least, you know, I, I will be more protected out there in society, which then brings up this whole idea of, you know, how do we really, how much of this parental response is responsible for our uh, behavior in the way that we interact with things that are cute. Now, another bit of Japanese cuteness that uh, instantly comes to mind is the the lucky cat, which oh, you yeah. find all you find it all over Asia, and you you find it increasingly everywhere in the United States as well. Of course, the the little generally like a gold plastic uh, cat, big eyes, and it's uh, it's waving its little paw mm-hmm. in the air. Uh, these are officially called Maneki Niko, or uh, beckoning cats. And uh, I was looking up some stuff about because I'm wondering, well, how does that tie into cute culture? Uh, because as, as I suspected, that's older in its roots than uh, Hello Kitty. It, it dates back to the, the Edo period, uh, which was between uh, 1603 and 1867. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just sort of picked up steam over time. So uh, even though uh, the, the, we look at the kitten writing in the 70s and, uh, and the, the rise of Hello Kitty is sort of the, the, the real... Um, pivotal aspects of mm-hmm. Kauai, uh, I feel like the, the roots were already there, if, if nowhere else in the presence of cats. I think you're right. Now I have this idea of, you know, the thousands of years from now, will people look back at, you know, instead of us saying, oh, the Ming Dynasty saying, you know, the rise of the Hello Kitty Dynasty, yeah. because that really is how pervasive Kauai is. And I think in the United States here, we're, we have flavors of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just look around, as you say, like, you know, we look around our office and we can see that it's it's um, interwoven into yeah. the way that we decorate or we perceive certain aspects of our life. We have our life. at least two adult members of the staff who are Disney fanatics. And I, there's a lot of uh, kawaii tied up there. Mm-hmm. And again, just about every other desk has some sort of token, some sort of little bit of kawaii, I feel like. If you look closely enough, if you root through their stuff. I mean, really get in there and invade their <laughs> privacy. You'll find some bit of cute that is uh, keeping them going. Hmm, that sounds kind of specific. Yeah. What, what what have you found? Oh, all, all sorts of stuff. I'll show you later. I have a box. Okay. So you're probably wondering to yourself, are there any studies that can support this cuteness that can kind of give us a better idea of why we react to this stuff the way we do? Of course there is, because, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about cute. We're talking about the way that a, a kitten's face is cute to us mm-hmm. because it is reminiscent of the baby's face. And then... What happens when we look at the baby, right? That's the question. Well, there have been studies that have looked at that. We have the technology, of course, to look inside the brain to see how what kind of uh, neural activity is going on when we do different things. And uh, there was uh, there's one particular study that we were looking at here, uh, and this was uh, this involved the use of a Meg scanner, and they were looking at parental responses to both puppy faces and baby faces. And then unfamiliar adult faces, right? Yes. Okay, and the, the really startling thing about this study is that when uh, participants were looking at all of these pictures, within one-seventh of a second, just a split second, literally, the medial orbital frontal cortex, which is involved in emotional responses, lit up like a pinball machine when people looked at infant and puppy faces, but was pretty, you know, re- relatively silent when adult faces showed up. So Kringlebach, uh, Morton Kringlebach, who ran the study, calls this the parental instinct. And he says these responses are almost certainly too fast to be consciously controlled and are therefore perhaps instinctive. That's his idea about it. 
Yeah, because we're talking about milliseconds here. We're talking about just an instant of seeing that baby face, that puppy face, and you are suddenly pacified. You suddenly you're 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 maybe put out of an aggressive spirit or an irritated spirit, and you have to somehow help the poor larval human or dog. Yeah, and the thing is that it even goes beyond visual processing because uh, people who are blind from birth have the same areas activated in their brains when they hear the names of animals. So the concept of animals or how we've painted them in language just goes far beyond just pictures here. The idea is really standing in for um, the experience. So that study makes a lot of sense. I mean, again, it just ties in directly to the way we look at look at, a, at an infant, at a kitten, at a puppy, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and how we instantly want to care for it on some level. And I feel like we all buy into that really easily. But here's another idea that a 2012 Japanese study uh, looked at, and this one was published in the PLOS one. They were asking, well, if I look at something cute, how does it affect my attentiveness? Mm-hmm. Uh, which which that question makes me think of all these things that we re- we surround ourselves with, these icons of cute, uh, like the, the cute little lamp that I have on my desk. It's like a little face uh, that I got at Ikea years ago. I, I, what happens when I look at that? Is it making me more relaxed? Is it making me more attentive? Is it a, just a distraction? Is all this cute just a distraction? Well, in this study, they, they looked into this. Uh, they took uh, participants, and they viewed um, animal images, and then the, they tested them to see how they performed on various tasks. Mm-hmm. And they found that participants who viewed infant animal images, ones that were rated particularly cute, they were able to perform tasks better than those who viewed images of boring adult animals. So it's interesting, right? Because you're like, well, is it really possible that if I look at a cute object or a cute picture that I'll be able to better, you know, <laughs> concentrate on the task before me, but I and will... And indeed hang in there as the cute cat hanging on from the branch oh dear. would want to, uh, to, to convey to you. I you like know? how you get that. Yeah. That was nice stuff. Um, but the thing is, is that each group of participants consisted of less than 50 university students. And I think they did three different versions mm-hmm. of these attention tests. And then all of these 50 university students were between the ages of 18 and 22. And so this is also taking place in Japanese culture where you know the, the kawaii effect is much more pronounced. Yes. Which leads some people to say perhaps there's not really that much evidence here that cuteness could bolster your attentiveness. Yeah, because if this held true, you would just want to cutify everything. You'd want uh, little cute faces and animals just crawling all over just everything in your work life, everything at home, just un- until you're just there's just an overdose of cute all the time just to keep you uh, attentive. And, and, and I have to say that might be distracting at that point. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what about cuteness in a robot? And I'm not talking about you, Arnie. Sorry. Uh, but I'm talking about kismet. The robot, and we've actually met Kismet before here on, on at least in the episodes that we've described. Kismet is a robot that has been used at MIT, and mm-hmm. it is used to figure out sort of the psychological ramifications of interactions between humans and robots, specifically children. It kind of looks like a skinless robot, Mogwai yes. or Furby. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Furby definitely. It's got the furry ears. It's got huge eyes, mm-hmm. and it can make a lot of distinctive. 
um, faces that that interact with the person. Yeah, and it works. Uh, I, th- I think it, it works really well because it's not uh, it's not an attempt at a human face. No. So you don't have to get into that uh, possibility of uncanny valley. Yeah. It's instead this this non-human, but uh, but it but it has uh, human qualities to it, and then it is successfully making all these various faces and conveying emotion. And at the bottom of this, there's just cuteness. That's what reigns supreme about this robot, um, other than its ability to interact with humans. So what do you do? You take this robot and you insert it into a study, uh, which is headed up by Terry Burnham at Harvard University, along with Brian Hare. They pitted 96 volunteers against each other anonymously in games where they had to donate money or withhold it. It's sort of the classic scenario we've seen over and over again. Right. Uh, they can donate it into a communal pot, and that would yield the most money, but only if other people donated too. So the researchers split the group into two. Half made their choices undisturbed at computer screens, while the other half were faced with a photo of this absolute adorable kismet. Now, the players who gazed at kismet gave 30% more to the pot than others, and Burnham and Hare believed that at some subconscious level they were aware of being watched, or they sort of took that as being watched, just looking at this photo. Um, but it may have something also to do with our brain kind of carrying out this decision-making with this cute, this representation of cuteness in front of us. Yeah, because how hard and selfish can you be in the presence of like a really cute kitten or an adorable baby? Not so much in, even in the processing of it, of thinking, thinking, oh, this is cute and, you know, that melts my heart a little bit, but in the, that, those microseconds mm-hmm. that we talked about of seeing this cute image and that, uh, you know, against every fiber in your, your, your body, any defense you may have, you ha- may have up against that cuteness and against the idea of giving your money away or, 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 or letting your, your temper, uh, uh, go down a bit, it kind of creeps in past all those defenses and, uh, deactivates you. Well, what I love too is this idea that you could manipulate altru- altruistic behavior with a pair of fake eyeballs, right? Yes. Just staring at you. Adorable fake eyeballs. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to take one more break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Kauai and a little bit more about cats. All right, we're back. Okay, so there is a wonderful article from Wired magazine called In Search of the Living, Purring, Singing Heart of the Online Cat Industrial Complex. Uh, the author, Gideon Lewis Krauss, cites a couple of different studies to try to explain why cats rule the Internet. And it's very interesting. Yeah, it is a very long discussion of uh, the power of cats, the power of felines. Uh, but it is, I would say it's must read for anyone who is a, a self-aware cat person. Because she, she really gets into like how we interact with the felines, how the felines to a limited extent interact with us mm-hmm. uh, and and how this becomes a metaphor for the way we approach life itself. Yeah, and if you're very interested in Japanese culture, this is also a great way to sort of plunge in mm-hmm. and see how that's played out. Uh, the first study that was mentioned in this article is a study of Internet habits of 216 Missouri University of Science and Technology students. Now, 30% of these students were deemed depressed after they were being, uh, after they were surveyed. So there's this sort of, you know, PAT standard survey to assess levels of depression that was administered to them. So they figured out 
that, you know, within the sample size, 30% of these people are depressed. So they found two things in this internet usage. Um, by the way, they also had access to the amount of um, activity they had online, not specifically what sites they went to. But the, the, the type content. of activity, like, for instance, uh, file sharing, yes. checking their email, yes. uh, surfing the web, looking at images, looking at videos. Yeah. And so two findings. In general, the more participant score on the survey indi- indicated depression, the more his or her Internet usage included uh, those features, as you say. So there was a lot of file sharing, high levels of that, um, especially with music and movies. And second, they found patterns of Internet usage that were statistically high among people with depressive symptoms compared with those without the symptoms. So, for example, uh, people with depressive symptoms tended to engage in a lot of email usage. Mm-hmm. So they, they were sending emails right and left. And um, this correlated with some research that was done by psychologists Janet Morhan Martin and Phyllis Schumacher. They found that frequent checking of email rate may relate to high levels of anxiety. And then, of course, that correlates to depressive symptoms. Well, I can definitely see where checking your email all the time would be depressing because that's where we get our bills these days. That's where bad news is, is just as likely to come in uh, via email as it is to come in over the phone. Yeah, and I think it's you know just the the act doing that over and over again sort of mm-hmm. belies this underlying um, anxiety. Yes, that is at the root of all of this. And so um, the study is really interesting. I won't go into all the different points that correlated with depressive um, symptoms, but those are just a couple of the highlights. Um, Lewis Krauss, the, the author of this article on Wired, then looked at this other study because he felt like these two kind of dovetailed together really nicely. Because first you have the study of just, you know, if you're, if you're depressive, then perhaps you're a higher user of the internet or you, mm-hmm. you're watching more videos and possibly suggested in this article, you're seeking out more cat videos. You're seeking out more cute yes. cat pet videos. Or you're going to cute yes. overload to get that dose of, uh, of cute fluffiness uh, into your life. Though he says, you know, that they did not know what exactly the content was. But, you know, it stands to reason that cats would be part of some of that. Yes. All right. So the second study, which is called Factors Influencing the Temporal Patterns of Dyadic Behaviors and Interactions Between Domestic Cats and Their Owners, says the conclusion quote, that the higher the proportion of all successful intents to interact with the cat that were due to the cat, the longer was the duration of the interactions. So he says that, in other words, your cat will like you best if you pretend (laughs) that you don't desperately want to play with it. I love this study. Uh, If it has not uh, won a prize with the ignobles, it should. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it's a very interesting study and a revealing study, but it reveals something that... uh, Scientifically, that cat owners pretty much already know. You, you bring somebody into the yeah. house who's allergic to the cat, uh-huh. who or or does not like the cat. That's who the cat is going to insist on walking on and climbing up on and rubbing against and everything else under the sun. You bring in a toddler who wants nothing more than to pet the cat for hours and hours on end. The cat is going to avoid that child like the plague. That's right, and it's great that there's finally a study that says this yeah. is this is what's <laughs> happening here, because all of us have suspected it. Um, the other part of the study was that the more neurotic the cat owner, the more desperate for fuzzy comfort and nuzzly security mm-hmm. and unconditional affection, which is essentially what we were just talking about. And then, of course, the briefer of the, that interaction. So, I think it's just important to state that as the owner. 
and, mm-hmm. and, and the cat, that dynamic. Because Lewis Krauss says, hey, what do we do on the Internet all day long? We like things. And then we sit around and we wait for things that we do to be liked. And he says that we check all the analytics and all the retreats. And this is where those cats come in because cats essentially are us trying to gain approval. Yes. So there's this huge symbol of these interactions that we have between us. Yeah, when the cat shows you attention, it, you have you have sort of won that attention. You have to con- you have to continually rewin that cat's attention because otherwise, because at any given point in a day, a cat will be like, "Hey, I really want to leave the house and never see you again. Is that cool?" Uh, and then and then that'll happen if you allow it to. And then if the cat remains in your house, you have to you have to sort of play it cool, or you sometimes you have to coax the cat and to get the reward of the the cute face of the the, the warmth against your body, the the furry feeling of holding the cat and, and, and of course the health benefits there have been numerous studies that have looked at the health benefits of cat yeah. ownership but then again the more you chase after it the more you try and make it your own the more likely that happiness is going to crawl under the bed and hide from you yeah and it's sort of like if, if you seek out these pictures and these videos of cats then on some level <laughs> you're you're courting approval from them and yes. he says you know if you see a picture of a cat and it says oh hi it's not, you know, it's the cat's not saying, oh, hello, hello, look at me. The cat's saying, oh, I didn't see you standing there. It's that sort of attitude. And so I love how he weaves all of this together, this Internet usage. So in that sense, the, the lucky cat is really a, a cat video that dates back to the Edo period because it's a beckoning cat. The cat is waving. <laughs> the cat is saying, hi, hello, and and actually acknowledging you, even though it's just a mechanical cat or, or just even an, an an unmoving uh, image of a cat. It's waving to you. It's beckoning to you, and therefore it's approving of you. That's interesting. It's like the unrequited love. Yes. And finally you have this cat saying, yes, come here. I will fold you into my arms. And then you have so- somebody that, that got frustrated and said, forget it. I'm not going to try and win these cats' approval anymore. I'm going to make myself one out of stone, mm-hmm. or I'm, I'm going to make one that actually mechanically waves at me, and that will do it. It'll be my cat golem. Yes, cat golem. Yeah. Um, Clay Shirky has an interesting TED Talk, and uh, he talks about something called cognitive surplus, and then he weaves that into LOL cats. And he says that cognitive surplus is the ability of the world's population to volunteer and to contribute and collaborate on large, sometimes global projects. So he uses LOL cats as an example, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people from all over the world contributing to this one effort, uh, essentially just to make all of us laugh, which is a great thing. And he says that... um, it is made up of two things, this cognitive surplus. He says that it's the world's free time and talents. And he says the world has over a trillion hours a year of free time to commit to these shared projects. I, can, I don't know where he came up with that stat, but that's <laughs> a lot. And then he says that, um, you know, we as a collective power of world changing behavior, if, if we can do the LOL cats, that we could potentially with that, those trillions of hours actually Commit it to something that is meaningful. I mean, beyond making all of us laugh, because that is meaningful. So he's saying, hey, if you've got time to LOL cat, you've got time to cure cancer. Uh, I think he's saying we can all, maybe not cure cancer, but, you know, we could all sort of... We could at least love each other a little more. We could love each other a little bit more. We could pool our efforts to try to tackle certain problems that would rely upon individual efforts um, to, to give their talents to this one thing. It's an interesting concept. Yeah. It's very Ted. 
It is. It's very Ted. Yeah, and it, it does make me think again of, of cuteness as a, as an icon, cuteness as a, as an object of worship. A little adorable cat made out of plastic that you put on your desk, and in a sense, you pray to every time you look at it. You're, you you maybe not you're actually not actually you're not actually saying any kind of a prayer, but you are looking to it and investing some level of cognitive energy into it and expecting to gain from it. There you go. I mean, this is as good as it gets when it comes to trying to explain the love of cats, the obsession with cats on the Internet, and then touching on this idea of kawaii and uh, the ways in which it colors our perception. All right, so there you have it. Kawaii, cute. Um, I'm sure everyone has some little bit of uh, insight on this to share, and we would love to hear about it. We'd love to know what is the little icon of cute that empowers you throughout the day, or what is the, what is a little bit of cuteness that you absolutely detest uh, and uh, and would would actually interfere with your productivity during the course of the day. Let us know about that as well. You can find us in all the usual places. StufftoBlowYourMind.com is the mothership, but we're also on Tumblr, Facebook, and Twitter, uh, Google+, YouTube, where we're Mind Stuff Show. And, Julie, if they want to send us a good old-fashioned email, where can they do that? Well, it's really quite easy. All you have to do is send us an email at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 